Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Over 30 years ago, Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey uh, collaborated on two books, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and In His Image. Uh, The books, I was running a chain of Christian bookstores at the time, and uh, the books did very well. Uh, They were steady uh, sellers, and uh, in fact, they became classics. Uh, They won a number of awards. And what was so unique about the books is that they were both extended analogies, uh, looks at the human body, uh, and drawing from the human body uh, many lessons uh, for life and uh, spirituality. Uh, They looked at the micro view of the cells to the macro view of our connectedness uh, to other people made in the image and likeness of God. It's good news that the books have now been combined and really quite updated, fully updated, and uh, combined together in a single volume called Fearfully and Wonderfully, The Marvel of Bearing God's Image. With me right now is Philip Yancey. Philip uh, has written 25 books, uh, and uh, his books have garnered 13 gold medallion awards from Christian publishers and booksellers. He's got more than 15 million books in print, published over 40 languages worldwide, he worked as a journalist in Chicago for some 20 years, editing the youth magazine Campus Life, while also writing for a wide variety of magazines, including Reader's Digest, Saturday Evening Post, National Wildlife, and Christian Today. And Philip, it's good to talk with you again. It's probably been 20 years. I think you're right. Back <laughs> when, uh, I don't know if you're still in Detroit, but I think that's where you were then. I was. I was in Detroit. I'm in Ann Arbor right now. Uh-huh. Um, but the, it's wonderful to have you back here. And this uh, I can remember this book, uh, the two books, uh, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and In His Image, when I was running Christian bookstores, and they were very steady, very steady sellers. I, when, how did you meet Dr. Paul Brand, who's now passed on? How did you meet him, and how did you decide to collaborate with him? It was back in around 1976, and I was writing a book that became Where Is God When It Hurts? Oh, yeah. first real book that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And um, as a young journalist, I was encountering all sorts of people who went through trauma, sometimes accidents, cancer, death, you know, all of that. I had a hard time putting that together with my faith, sure. believing that God is a good and loving God. Like many people, you know, the problem of pain was a yeah. barrier to me. So I went to uh, libraries. There were a number of them in the Chicago area where, where I was living. And started reading anything I could find on the problem of pain, the curse of pain, you know, the, and basically understood it as God's one mistake. Yeah. Gave us a pretty good world, but there was this problem here of pain that you can't really fit together very easily. While I was doing that, my wife found a very different message in a brochure. She was cleaning out the medical supply closet of this uh, medical supply company, and found a little book called The Gift of Pain by Paul Brand, Dr. Paul Brand. And he was uh, a British surgeon who had lived most of his life in India, then came to the United States where he headed up a leprosarium. There was still a leprosarium in Louisiana. It's, It's closed since then. But he was the one who established that this terrible fear disease, maybe the oldest recorded disease, one of the most feared diseases, leprosy, Mm -hmm. everything that it did to the human body was caused by the lack of pain. So people just stopped feeling pain, and they would rake a 
a lawn or or um, cut grass with a some wooden handle that had splinters in it. And they would get a splinter. They would notice it because they didn't feel pain. They would keep doing it. It would get infected, and gradually they'd lose their hand. Right. Mm-hmm. And people would wear shoes that were too tight. You know, when I get a new pair of shoes, I can wear them about one day, and then I'll, I'll go back to my old sloppy <laughs> shoes for a while, and then gradually kind of break the shoes in, we say. But a leprosy patient doesn't feel that. Even something as simple as blinking, we blink every few seconds, and that's triggered by a little pain cell. And if you just insist, I want to keep my eyes open, you will realize how that pain cell is very effective. It mm-hmm. forces you to blink. Well, leprosy patients don't have that pain cell working anymore, and so about a third of them go blind simply because they don't blink. So Dr. Brand had a wholly different view of pain. He said, thank God for pain. It, it would be the one gift that I could give my leprosy patients, which is a whole new perspective for me that blew my mind. Yeah. I called him up out of the blue and said, uh, I'd like to come meet you. I'd like to come interview you. And then gradually we became very good friends, and I followed him around for almost 10 years, Hmm. writing together in collaboration. Uh, When did he pass on? 2003. Okay, so it's actually been a while. uh, Yeah. Um, You, you, uh, in the book, you tell the story of Sadan, S-A-D-A-N, I don't know how to pronounce it, but he nearly lost his hands because he lacked that pain signal. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about his story? Yes. Um, Sadan was one of the most long-suffering patients. Many of the people who have leprosy are from the poor castes in India, often uh, in those days called untouchables, or now called Dalits. And Sadan was an exception. He was from a middle-class family, had studied to be an accountant, I believe, and and then he got this disease, and and people were afraid. So they kicked him out of the village. They kicked him out of his home. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to be around a person with leprosy. Right. And he heard that there was this one doctor that would treat. Um, and and so he made his way to the hospital where Dr. Brand was working. Dr. Brand painstakingly put together his hands, his feet. He, he came up with these various surgeries where he would transfer tendons to fingers that weren't working and and get them working again, because leprosy patients usually had kind of a claw hand mm. that wasn't really functioning. Okay. So after months, in fact years, of rehabilitation, he thought, okay, I'm ready to go back. I I can get a job. I can live in my village now. The, the disease itself is dormant. I'm certainly not infectious, and now I've got these hands that have been remade. So he went home, and... Uh, fell asleep on the mat where Indians sleep right next to the floor on kind of a straw mat. Mm -hmm. The next morning he woke up and his finger had been gnawed and he knew immediately what happened. Mm. A rat came in Uh. the middle of the night and started chewing his finger. And because he feels no pain, he didn't even wake up. Well, he he was so demoralized, he thought, how am I going to tell the folks at the hospital who trained me so well and I can't believe this happened so that night he said I'm just I can't go to sleep I'll just stay awake all night he got this accounting textbook and was sitting by a kerosene lantern and was reading the textbook and then you know reading accounting at 3 (laughs) a.m. is not enough to keep you awake and and uh, gradually his hand that the other arm slipped down 
hit the top of the kerosene lantern and, and burned the flesh. Oh. So the next morning he woke up, and he's got one hand gnawed by a rat, another hand with a terrible burn wound, and he was just disconsolate. Again, how can I face the people who invested so much time and energy in my hand? And he came back and said, I'll just never be free without pain. You have to be on constant guard. And, of course, that's what pain does. It's the guardian for us. It yep. keeps us from doing things like that. And if you if you lose it, if you miss it, then your life is just one constant danger after another. Mm. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul recognized that a healthy spiritual body functions much like a healthy physical body. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, as as members of the body of Christ, uh, what are the signals? How, how do we reflect pain properly uh, so that the, the body functions in a healthy way? Mm. Yes, the phrase that Dr. Brand uses is, a healthy body is not a body that feels no pain. A healthy body is a body that attends to the weakest part. And that's what we are called to do as members of the body. I travel internationally a lot, and I see everywhere I go, I see Christians on the front line who are ministering. And the, uh, the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians makes the pattern very clear. He says, the God of all comfort, I love that phrase, mm-hmm. the description of God, the God of all comfort has comforted you. Therefore, take that comfort and spread it abroad to those who need it. And, and that's what we're called to do. You know, it, it's not easy sometimes. We want to close our eyes to the homeless people, to the migrants, to uh, people with Ebola virus, you know, those kind of things. We want to just kind of shut them out of our mind. But when we do that, we are basically amputating part of the body of Christ, and we're called to uh, attend to those pains, those, those weak parts, the places where people are being persecuted for their faith, places where they're in a, in a disaster situation after a tsunami or a forest fire or something like that. And where I go, the church is doing that. It's yeah. one of the beautiful things that I enjoy reporting on as a journalist. doesn't always make CNN, but, man, every place I've gone, there are these faithful people who at great personal cost are out there spreading abroad that comfort from yeah. the God of all comfort. Yeah. There's, everybody's remembering Woodstock 50 years ago. Oh, and yeah. it's kind of uh, one of the markers of baby boomers, uh, the boomers being the first generation to have uh, television and large multinational corporations telling us uh, that we can have it all. Uh, and it's often been written that baby boomers uh, had developed extravagant expectations of what the world held out for them and of their ability to shape that world uh, to satisfy themselves. But they're aging. I'm aging. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, what, and I'm not, I, I mean, I, there are a few things that I don't mind about aging. I, I do like the wealth of experience that I've accumulated. But um, at the same time, I don't have the energy I used to. Uh, I have parts of my body that are more painful. Did, did uh, Dr. Brand reflect much on the, the whole aging process? Yes, he did. Um, he saw it as a as a preparation time, kind of a, a letting go time. You know, mm-hmm. for much of our healthy youth, we're we're accumulating things. We're accumulating degrees and and um, successes and possessions and all that. 
And then there comes a time when you're 70 years old, I'm turning 70 this year, <laughs> where, where you think, you know, these things really don't matter that right. much. I'm not going to take them with me. So what kind of legacy can I leave? Mm-hmm. Uh, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, talks about the difference between resume legacy and resume virtues and um uh, I forget the phrase he uses, obituary virtues. Okay. <laughs> you know, the things that we spend so much time having the right resume so we can impress people. And, and that doesn't really matter. What matters most is the kind of thing that people remember you for at your funeral. Right. Those right. are the virtues that last forever. Yeah, yeah. Philip, hold it there. I hear the music coming up. We'll take a break and continue on. My guest is uh, author Philip Yancey. Looking at uh, the work that he did with Dr. Paul Brand uh, over 30 years ago, it's been brought together in a, a wonderfully updated version, Fearfully and Wonderfully. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is author Philip Yancey. He and Dr. Paul Brand, uh, over 30 years ago, collaborated on two truly outstanding books that have become modern classics, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and In His Image. Um, Those two books have been brought together, fully updated, and combined in a volume called Fearfully and Wonderfully, The Marvel of Bearing Bearing God's Image. It's really um, great for a a new generation of readers uh, to pick up. And we're talking about the insights that uh, Philip and Dr. Brand are able to convey uh, through these books the Quasimodo effect. What is that? Well, of course, Quasimodo was was from the uh, the Hunchback of, of Notre Dame, and the Quasimodo effect is what happens when we start judging people by their physical appearance. Mm-hmm. And it's easy, even in in um, fairy tales and and uh, the stories you tell your children at night. It's easy for us to describe monsters as people who who have some outstanding disability, like the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Right, right. And um, Dr. Brand discovered uh, there was um, a researcher in federal prisons, and he would go around to different prisons, and he noticed that a lot of people had disabilities. Either their ears stuck out or they had an oversized nose or they had some sort of um, you know, cleft palate that had never been repaired, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. In fact, he found out that whereas in the normal population, maybe 11%, 10, 11% of people had some sort of defect that was obvious in their facial appearance, in prisons, there were about 60%. Wow. And so he started thinking, well, maybe it's because when you're growing up in, in grammar school, high school, kids can be cruel. And they start calling you, uh, you know, shorty, stumpy, whatever your right, right. Uh, hair lip, whatever, you know, these cruel names. And it turns you into a, a person who can actually become a psychopath because you're so rejected by the rest of society that you turn to a life of crime for whatever reason, to get even or, or something like that. And, and Dr. Brand um, realized that in his own stories that he told his children, he fell back on that. He would describe this monster person, you know, who, who was always the evil person. Yeah. And, and then he spent his life among people with leprosy who were deformed. Their noses swell, uh, you know, their blinds, you see calluses across their eyes, and uh, often lose their digits, their fingers, their toes, and sometimes whole limbs. 
And these are some of the most gentle and in, in many cases godly people that he had ever met. And he, re, he was convicted that um, we should not judge on the external and we should not add to that Quasimodo effect of, of applying, because a person has physical deformities, implying that there's some sort of moral or um, moral deformity as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know. I've, I've done, uh, I've run a few different Christian organizations, and I've done a lot of interviewing and hiring. And uh, I, I, there's no doubt about it that uh, an attractive person, a person who's well put together, uh, immediately starts out with a with a real. Uh, it gets a head start. Oh sure. Uh, you know, in the job market. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 just one of those things. And I, it's interesting because of uh, again St. Paul's description of Satan as an angel of light. Uh, mm. We need to remember Satan is not necessarily this uh, grotesque figure that we would recognize if we saw him, but um, that uh, in the biblical understanding of evil, uh, it can often present itself in rather lovely ways. Uh, even Eve's desiring the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because she saw that it was desirable for wisdom. So oftentimes yes. it comes, evil even comes packaged in attractive ways. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And my goodness, here we are in a country that, uh, that almost worships youth and beauty. If you looked at the covers of magazines, you never see... Ugly people. Right. You never, you never see kind of ordinary-looking people. But if you go to a, a Walmart or any shopping center and just, you know, just look at everybody who goes by, there are a few truly beautiful or handsome people. Right. Very small. Very rare, yep. You know, you never see supermodels just walking around on the street. Right. And yet they fill our magazines, they fill our television, and it gives this image that that none of us can live up to. Yeah. Um, and... The message that that I take away is that's not what counts. That's that's not what determines bearing the image of God, for example. In fact, Dr. Brand gives examples of people who were the least beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, and yet they demonstrated the image of God. In a, you mentioned in a Peter Foster, this RAF pilot whose face was disfigured from burns. Um, what was the lesson in the life of Peter Foster? Yes, this was back in the Battle of the Blitz, and German bombers every night would come over and unleash this barrage of incendiary bombs on London. It was burning down, and it looked like they were just going to destroy the entire city. Well, they, these very brave RAF pilots would go up there, and people would actually stand outside and watch these battles where these tiny little, almost like mosquitoes, <laughs> you know, planes yeah. Would uh, would take on the bombers and the, the fighter escorts, and eventually they caused so much damage that the Germans gave up that uh, blitz campaign. Well, the the hurricane fighters that the uh, British pilots were using had one flaw: they had an engine in the front, and then they had a fuel line that ran right through the cockpit back to the back. So if they were if they were hit in the front of the plane, this fire would develop and it would just burn the face of the pilot. Now, they had an ejection seat. It didn't kill them, so they would eject, parachute down, and then would be put back together through um, a series of plastic surgeries. 
but uh, you can never reproduce, no matter what, how many graphs or whatever you do, you can never reproduce the, the tissue on a, on a human face, mm. the eyelids, the lips, you know, these beautiful things that are designed into the human face. And Dr. Brand was one of the people working on, he was actually a resident at the time, and he was working on, on these patients. And Peter Foster said, you know, look around. He's, he was one of the RAF pilots. He said, he said, we keep wanting one more surgical attempt to make us look a little better. Mm-hmm. And it's actually fear. We're afraid that when we go out there, people are going to reject us. Even though we were hailed as the heroes who saved Britain, yeah. the finest, you know, the, the most skilled, the most handsome men of the day, yet because of the way we look, we're the same person inside, but because of the way we look, we're going to be treated like outcasts. And he said the key is to find a mirror. And by that, he didn't mean a piece of glass. In fact, most of them wouldn't even look in a mirror because mm. it, it reminded them of how far they had to go. Mm. He said the mirror is a person. And in his case, it was his fiance. They were engaged before the war, and then suddenly his face is burned off. And, and the mirror is, how is she going to react to me now? And because she loved the person that he was, not the person that he looked like, they went on to get married. He became very successful. Mm. And he said, follow these people around, because if they don't have a mirror, if they have a mirror who treats them with repulsion or, or uh, just disapproval, they tended to be uh, hermits. They would just stay in their room all day. They never amounted to anything, even though they were the talented, skilled people. But those who were treated with the image of God by, the, by others around them, did rise and become some of the leaders of of corporations and and the military in Britain. And that's a reminder, we're all mirrors. There's that wonderful passage from C.S. Lewis who says that uh, every day we are helping the people around us to become either a person like an angel that demonstrates light and eternal value, or we're forcing them into the opposites. We're turning them into these monsters because yeah. of the way we're treating them. He, he says it much better than I've just described. But the point is that we are the mirrors to the people around us. We can either draw out their best qualities or their worst qualities. And how we treat them is a major part in, in what happens. You know, that's uh, that's interesting that the, the think of the, the person or people most important to you as uh, mirrors, kind of the looking glass self. I mean, the, the, you see these people and how they respond to you, and that can be vastly more important than even uh, the image that you see in this glass mirror. Um, I, I mean, there's a certain grace that comes with that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's unexpected. Uh, you look in the, the regular mirror and you see this disfigurement, uh, but you have those friends or loved ones who uh, they don't see that when they look upon you. Uh, right. And it seems to me there's something especially analogous with grace in this respect. Mm. I I had an experience that was a very convicting experience. I was at a leprosarium in the country of Nepal, 
And we were given, my wife and I were given a tour by a doctor there. And there was a woman in, in the courtyard as we passed this courtyard. And I, I've got to tell you how he, she was the ugliest human being I've ever seen. Uh, Leprosy had ravaged her face. Yeah, yeah. Her, her nose had rotted off so that you, when you looked at her, you looked right into her skull. Oh. She had been blind for years. She had no fingers, no, no toes. And uh, we went ahead and had a tour of the hospital. And then we came back. And in that 30-minute period, this woman had made her way all the way across the courtyard. She couldn't walk. Mm. She would plant her elbows and then drag her body, almost like a, a caterpillar. And she approached where we were because she, she heard us, and so she kind of wanted to meet us. Didn't know who we were, but we were speaking a foreign language. And when I looked down at her, I figured, well, she must be a beggar because that's all you can do in Nepal. If you have leprosy, nobody will hire you. Mm-hmm. And I reached in my pocket to see if I had some Nepali coins I could give her. Well, my wife, who's a social worker who worked with the down and out in Chicago, had a very different reaction. She knelt down beside her, put her arm around her, and the the Nepali woman started singing. We didn't know Nepali, of course, but we knew the tune. It was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the doctor who was giving us a tour said, Oh, Philip, I want you to meet Don Maya. She's no beggar. She's the closest thing to a saint we have. <laughs> Every time the doors of the chapel are open, she's there. And in fact, do you have any prayer requests? Because Don Maya's prayers almost always get answered. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness. I, well, first I was convicted by judging her on sure. the outside. And then I thought, what an amazing thing that the God of the universe would make himself so small that he could make a very comfortable home in this person who was so unattractive on the outside. <laughs> good. Philip, can you stay with me another segment? I can do that. Very good. My guest, Philip Yancey, Fearfully and Wonderfully, The Marvel of Bearing God's Image. I'm Al Cresto. We'll be right back. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, talking with Philip Yancey, the uh, best-selling author of, oh, over 20 books, and we are looking at uh, really a a body of work that's so enduring. He, over 30 years ago, he and uh, Dr. Paul Brand collaborated on two books, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and then uh, In His Image. Here we are 30 years later, the books have been uh, combined, largely updated and represented for a new generation in Fearfully and Wonderfully, the marvel of bearing God's image. And, um, you know, I, I there's so many remarkable stories uh, throughout uh, this book, and I'm, and it's always difficult to know exactly where to focus, but one of the things that um, I, I find very comforting in uh, your perspective is to remember that we are all intentions of God, that we are directly willed by him, and he designed and knew us before we entered the world. And I, I was received a letter, an email from a friend last night who asked me to be praying for her daughter-in-law, who was in a very difficult pregnancy. And I was just, I was thinking uh, as I was praying about the drama 
of uh, life unfolding in the womb like that. And uh, always trying to remember that, uh, again, God has willed uh, this being that is now uh, inside of her mother, striving uh, for uh, life. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Dr. Brand's thinking on this uh, was to, to help people come to grasp this idea of God's knowledge of them prior to their even coming into the world. Yes, and in fact, um, I include in there uh, something that happened af- actually after Dr. Brand had passed away, but it was it was just so fitting that I added it. Yeah. Um, you know about TED Talks. And yeah, certainly. There was a TED Talk by uh, a gentleman who wrote the programming, the computer programming for this technique that actually won the Nobel Prize in medicine. And it's a way of kind of high-resolution inside-the-womb picturing of exactly what is going on. I'm not sure how, how, I don't think they put a camera up there, but you can can actually see the fetus developing through some sort of ultrasonic high-density technique. And all the way through, he, in the TED Talk, he had condensed that into, I think it was like a nine-minute film. And as he's describing, first it starts out with one cell, then two, and then four, and then eight, and then, yeah. and then it keeps growing. And then gradually, you know, some of those cells become blood cells, and some become skin cells, and some become brain cells, and the nerves form, and then 50,000 miles of, of uh, arteries and capillaries start growing. And they, know, they all know exactly where to go. And the cartilage knows exactly where to go and, and grow at exactly the same proportion as the bone around it. You know, it's just amazing. And as he's talking, here's this scientist, and he just keeps saying, you, you, can't, you have to use words like miracle. You have to use words <laughs> like divinity. Right. There is nothing comparable that, that any human being can do to create something like this. And, and it's happened at least 7 billion times, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes. People who are living. So... One thing we want to do, that phrase, of course, fearful, fearfully and wonderfully, comes from um, the Psalms, 139, where mm-hmm. the psalmist says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And uh, Dr. Brand had that unusual ability to combine both the, the marvel, the detail of the anatomy that produces the marvel, much like that TED Talk showed, and and then demonstrate it in actual living human beings, to put together the science and the theology and the human story in a way that I had never seen before. That's what attracted me to him, mm-hmm. and that's why I spent so much time with him, because he had this font of wisdom. And I didn't want that to get lost. So even though these books had been out for more than 30 years, readers have changed, oh, yeah. science has changed, the medicine has changed, yep. and I wanted to reintroduce, to perpetuate his legacy and the lessons that he came up with, which are um, I think very applicable today. We live in a in a much more fractured, divided society, and Dr. Brand describes not an organization but an organism. Yes. How can we work together as a body? Very different cells, but all following the orders of the head to to cause the whole body to work. And he comes up with with um, with lessons and wisdom that I think flow directly out of 
the organism of the body that you you can't read in a in a self help book. They were just transformative to me, and I wanted to share that again with a new generation. Well, I think it's it maybe even more important for this generation because uh, it requires uh, the capacity to uh, requires the willingness to take time to wonder and marvel. Um, and I think uh, it, that's becoming increasingly difficult uh, because we're so flooded with information, and uh, you know, screen. We're on, we have screen time, you know, a good portion of our day. We're looking at our cell phones, or you know, we're online. We're doing something. So I mean, I think a book like this is going to have even greater impact now than thirty years ago. Well, I hope so. You're absolutely right. Our the lack of information is not a problem anymore. We have, we have a <laughs> servant of information. But our civilization is very good at taking things apart. That's what digitalization does. So we can take a Beethoven symphony and reduce it to a series of ones and zeros on a compact disc, you know, and, and then stream it over the, line, over the Internet. Uh, but we're not very good at putting things together. So very often the, the medical people don't talk to the physicists and the physicists don't talk to the actors and the actors don't talk to the musicians you know we're we're in these little silos and dr brand had that unique ability uh, through the three civilizations we lived in uk and then india and then the united states to have that big picture view and then as a scientist and and an engineer he trained as an engineer first and a, a a doctor who dealt with patients and their real life stories every day, he was able to have that kind of big picture, putting it all together view, which is so rare today. He compares the advantages of uh, uh, autonomy, which he identifies with the amoeba, with the advantages of specialization, uh, the white blood cell. Um, what? Tell us what he was trying to do there. Well, you think of amoeba, we've most of us in high school got to see one through a microscope, and it's like a little blob. And um, they're very small, and they don't move very fast. So they can spend all day just kind of plumping one little piece of themselves forward, and then they follow in like a drop of oil or something. And maybe uh, in an hour, they'll have moved a part of an inch. And if they're, say, in a tin can in a junkyard, that amoeba may spend its entire life inside this little tin can. Now, it's absolutely free. It's autonomous. It can do anything it wants. Nobody's going to tell it what to do. If it wants to turn left, it can turn left. If it wants to turn right, it can turn right. Well, in the human body, there are cells that look very much like an amoeba. If you put them side by side, you'd have a hard time distinguishing them, telling them apart. And those cells are the white blood cells. And they, much like an amoeba, just kind of drift lazily through the bloodstream until until this alarm sounds in the body that says, we've got an infection. It's a, it's a flu virus. It's a measles virus. It's Ebola. It's something. And we don't know what to do. So the white cells suddenly, at warp speed, find a way. They, they morph in, through <laughs> these uh, capillaries and, and shoot through the bloodstream. They go to that site. They memorize what the immunization is is required, and then they carry that back to the lymph glands. They create a whole bunch of white cells that are targeted toward that particular threat. And uh, the point Dr. Brand makes is for there are a lot of white cells who, who are never called into action. They just kind of float around, but when they are needed, they, are, they will keep alive the entire body. 
So if you look at the amoeba, you say, well, it's autonomous, it's free, it can do anything it wants, <laughs> but doesn't doesn't accomplish much in its life. <laughs> right. But a white blood cell can keep alive uh, an Einstein, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and if you... Of course, the disease AIDS shows what happens when they don't when it stops working. The immunization part stops working. A common cold can cause your death. Measles can cause your death. Anything, any little infection at all. The white blood cell is the key that keeps us alive. And so, yeah, it loses autonomy, but the specialization it contributes in a critical way that keeps the entire body going. Do you? Uh the final image that is uh, you have here is the that of the hands of Christ that, uh, mm. and uh, and that is uh, it reflects the uh, mission that we have, reaching out in a variety of ways um, to to uh, help others and share Christ with others. Um, why don't you elaborate a bit on that? Yes. Um, the, yeah, the final image is an actual true story. There was a, a bombing in World War II. There, it's hard to pin down exactly where it occurred. Originally, I thought it was in England. Later, I found out it was in France. But this church was, the statue of Jesus in this church was pretty much destroyed. But they put it back together. They took the pieces and painstakingly put it together, except for the hands. They really, uh, the hands were destroyed in such a way that they didn't have enough to work with to put it back together. And finally, they left a, a little sign that says, He has no hands but ours. Huh. And I think that's the the understanding of the Church. You know, Jesus changed history more than anybody who's ever lived. Any, anybody would agree with that, even mm-hmm. a, a secular historian. Changed history. But he, he only worked for three years. Yeah. And he, didn't, he did nothing for America's. He did nothing for China. He did nothing for India. He only affected a, maybe a few thousand people in a tiny little corner of the Roman Empire. That's all he did. And then he said, okay, my, my work is done. It's finished. It's up to you guys now. I'm leaving. And, and right before he left, he said, uh, I want you to take this message and go into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what the church has been doing ever since. We, we are the hands of Christ. And the healing that we offer, the uh, liberation of those caught in sexual trafficking, the comfort, uh, all of these things, the ministering to the, to the poor, things that the church has been doing and is doing right now as we're speaking all over the world, that is actually the work of Christ. It's indistinguishable from what Jesus did on earth because he said, he said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You are the body of Christ, the physical, visible presence of God. And when Jesus was here, if you wanted to know what God is like, you could just follow Jesus around and ask him questions and and uh, draw your own conclusions. Now, much more problematically, now the only way a lot of people know what God is like is if, if right. we in the church show what God is like. Yeah. And I think that's the the true challenge to those of us who are part of the body of Christ. We are we are indeed the representation of what God is in this world. That's God's plan for you and for me and for everybody who is a follower of Jesus. Philip, thanks so much for being with me today and uh, for your work over the years. 
I've read a number of your books and uh, greatly appreciate uh, what you've contributed to the body of Christ. Uh, hopefully we'll talk uh, again before too long. It would be it would be an honor. I've seen the list of people you've interviewed over the years, and I'm honored to be <laughs> listed with them. Thank you so much, Al. Thanks, Philip.